Welcome to the future of gaming. GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly podcast. We have the usual hosts, Nico Vereke and myself, and Phil Collins, um, who's back, finally. And then we have a very special guest, Joachim Akren. Uh, I don't know if I said that right, who is an investor in elite game developers. Was that, was that good? Um, yeah, it was Finnish really names. Really yeah, but you're Dutch, so yeah. you can do it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, good. So... As usual, we try to like try to predict what we're going to be talking about, and and we usually when like go way off of course. Um, the goal is to quickly do an update about some uh, bit, bit of big news that happens, which um, is about the case between Apple and Epic, and we're also briefly going to discuss the um, Microsoft Activision acquisition and what the UK uh, wants to um, wants to say about that, and then we'll dig into a bit of early stage. Game studio investing because that's what Joachim is um, like specialized in, I would say, and great at. And he has some fantastic opinions and insights and advice that he gives. So um, that's the plan. So, Phil, you have been from the three of us following the news probably the most. So, um, maybe let's start with Epic v. Apple. What's important to take away from that one? Yeah, sure. So it's it's been a busy 48 hours in the regulatory space for gaming, which is not the most fun topic, but important nonetheless. So on the Apple Epic side, um, that that process has been going through appeals courts here in the U.S. So just as a reminder, back in 2020, this all kicked off when Epic decided to put in alternate payment methods into Fortnite directly on, on the App Store, which of course directly breached Apple's terms of service and which is you know, was not was not surprising to Epic. That was that was somewhat intentional to kind of spark this battle over what is or isn't fair or monopolistic on app stores. And since then, they've been going back and forth on on app store practices and what should or shouldn't be allowed um, for groups like Apple and Google. And you know, after kind of like a ping pong session over three years, the the latest decision that was released this week um, was heavily in favor of Apple, actually, um, despite Epic's best efforts to kind of play white knight for the gaming industry and 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 be the 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 voice of the developer um so what, what basically happened is nine out of the ten counts that the the u.s appeals courts were looking at were were voted in favor of of apple um not being monopolistic in their current practices the one exception that was a, a slight win for epic was the anti-steering practices which is effectively apple's ability to prohibit developers from linking out to external payment method methods within the app um, has kind of been overrun. So that seems like a, a small win for developers where there can be a little bit more of a direct touch point in monetization by enabling buttons in app to link you out to your web browser and, and have direct payment um, alternatives. So Overall, I'd say pretty disappointing for Epic. Um, Apple, I think, is going to continue pushing on this anti-steering um, clause because it is it is important to their continued ownership of the wallet of the end user. Um, but that's that's kind of the the high level update from from that side. And so this anti-steering rule means that potentially game developers could offer like ten percent off on IAPs if. Users click a link, go to a website, and do the payment there. That would mean that they get ninety percent instead of the traditional seventy percent of the, the payment. Right. I think the the big the big loss on the other hand is this idea around third party marketplaces being enabled on on Apple devices seems to be a little bit less clear. I think there's mm-hmm. been a lot of movement in Europe around potentially preparing for the introduction of alternative marketplaces to the App Store on Apple devices. It seems like the 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 latest ruling is not in favor of that, at least here in the U.S. So I think that's still kind of up in the air. But yeah, the anti-steering that you mentioned, Nico, is is probably the one favorable outcome for the time being for developers on the App Store. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'm also yeah waiting for, for seeing like what is sort of like the true uh, like utilization of these, these changes that are going to happen right now. Um, like I, I think all the the movement towards like more open app stores and mobile ecosystems. I don't see it going away. Like it, there's momentum here. And like, even though there's, there are these kind of 
rulings in place. Like the it's just the U.S., but the pressure coming from outside of U.S. is still like pretty pretty amazing. I think it's also a bit about like how Europe treats kind of like these monopolistic like organizations. It's gonna it's gonna be hell hell for Apple. Awesome, good. Um, now, next up, we have Activision Blizzard and Microsoft. Can you tell yeah. us about that, Phil? Yeah, I mean, going back to the, the regional point that Joachim just brought up, um, the CMA, which is Britain's regulatory body, decided to to block the Microsoft Activision deal um, following the FTC's decision several months back. Um I think what what's interesting here is the rationale that they're that they're using. So like I'll read directly from the the gov.uk press release of this, but they said Microsoft already accounts for an estimated 60 to 70% of global cloud gaming services and has other important strengths in cloud gaming from owning Xbox, the leading PC operating system, which is Windows, and a global cloud computing infrastructure across Azure and Xbox cloud gaming. The deal would reinforce Microsoft's advantage in the market by giving it control over important gaming content like Call of Duty, Overwatch, World of Warcraft. And the evidence available to CMA indicates that, absent the merger, Activision would start providing games via cloud platforms in the foreseeable future. The cloud allows UK gamers to avoid buying expensive gaming consoles and PCs and gives them much more flexibility and choice as to how they play allowing Microsoft to take such a strong position in the cloud gaming market just as it begins to grow rapidly would risk undermining the innovation that is crucial to the development of these opportunities. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical about the Microsoft Activision deal in terms of the health of the gaming industry, um, whether that be, you know, monopolistic control over content and distribution, um, you know, potentially rising prices for end users over time. But I think the the argument that they're using here seems very strange across protecting the nascent cloud gaming industry. In, in a lot of ways, like we've already seen that in their in their assessment, Microsoft owns sixty to seventy percent of global cloud gaming. And to be honest, I, I struggle to see groups as well positioned to facilitate the adoption of cloud gaming as someone like a Microsoft. They do own the underlying infrastructure. By owning the underlying infrastructure, they're actually able to provide a better deal to end users because this can be a loss leader for them. Um, I think that we've tried, we've seen a lot of startups try to innovate in this space, and the business models that are required to make this make sense for a startup are always, I think, uncompelling to the end user, where you're paying per minute or per hour. It almost seems like an outdated 1970s arcade model of playing games, which is kind of the opposite of the direction we've been trending for the last you know, decades. And so, again, like not not necessarily vouching for the deal. Um, I, I'm still optimistic that it'll actually end up getting through despite being bearish on what it could mean for gaming and game developers. But the defense of the CMA almost makes me think like they're misunderstanding what cloud gaming actually is and what the prospects of growth look like there because I hate to say it, but this is one of the very few areas in gaming where I look at a space and I think, this is kind of going to be dominated by the big players. And I think the small, the small fish in the sea are going to really struggle to keep up. Um, and normally that's something that I, I try to avoid as much as possible because I think it's a flawed way of thinking. But just in terms of the, the operational costs and the infrastructure required to do this well, mm. the fact that these big players already own the underlying infrastructure and can, again, be loss leaders, I think is, is a really compelling entry point. And it almost feels like the regulatory bodies are preventing the most well-suited candidate from creating a market from creating a market and handicapping that effort. So I thought the, the rationale was particularly interesting there. Could it be that the regulators in the UK looked at this, said we there's like, you know, 10 reasons why we should block this. And the, you know, the, the, the nascent cloud industry was the best case they could make. Although the, you know, the, the, and effect of that would would have been smaller, but more from a like legal perspective, it gave them a stronger case. Maybe, and I mean, I think that's partially why the U.S. has honed in on that too. Is vertical integration and owning multiple different steps of the the game development and distribution process, and the owning the end hardware. Vertical integration in the U.S. has basically been given a regulatory pass for the last several decades. Um, it's it's more been on the horizontal side or like really trying to own like, you know, Activision buying Riot and Ubisoft and EA. Like that would raise more alarm bells historically for U.S. regulators. And it seems like 
this this cloud aspect of owning distribution is is really like the most compelling legal argument that could align with precedent um, in an interesting way. But I'm sure there's you know there's more to it than just this cloud argument. It just seems like that is the one that they're choosing to plant their flag into. Joachim, any any thoughts? No, not really. I think this is uh, a lot of people not understanding like <laughs> what the, what's the right way to to open up uh, echo like an ecosystem that's healthy for great games to come come up. I think that's that's what we what we all want. It's it's kind of hard to to make sure that that happens in these kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Good. All right. Um, because I, um, you know, I do a lot of podcasts and you think I'd know how to organize those, but we should probably have started Joachim with a bit more about your background before we dug into, you know, meat and topics. So why don't we just go back and I'd love to, you know, get, get your story a bit. Um, you know, what's your your career been like in the games industry and, um, what are you doing today and how did you end up there? Yeah. So like 20 years close to spending time in, in the games industry, uh, two venture-backed companies uh, that I founded. I was at Supercell in between those companies for a bit. Uh, now, four years of being an angel investor. Uh, I was at Play Ventures as a VC for two years. And now I'm full-time focused on my uh, company called Elite Game Developers, which um, creates content for entrepreneurs in gaming, uh, people who want to start companies um, and to help them sort of not make all the same mistakes I made. And uh, that's uh, already uh, like uh, one of the, the main missions here. And so I, I write a, a newsletter uh, on on entrepreneurship in gaming. It, you can f- subscribe on the elitegamedevelopers.com website uh, and there's a, a podcast as well that I do where I talk with founders and and talk about these topics as well and uh, investing yeah so I'm I'm now I think 35 different companies where I'm an angel investor in so it's it's a it's a nice nice group and there's a lot of intel already from just interacting with those companies so I was just thinking about like how much like two founded two companies but i've learned so much from interacting with a, a portfolio of of gaming founders and learning from their in like behaviors interactions their decision making like wh- where it goes um personality fit for entrepreneurship everything so interesting fascinating super excited to dig into that and by the way, listener, if you are listening to this, interested in what we are talking about here, you should probably subscribe to Joachim's newsletter because it's this stuff, but probably better. I'm going to be honest. Um, also, I saw 8,000 sub- subscribers now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's growing pretty substantially every day. So Amazing. Amazing. Um, good. I'd like to kick this off. You said, you know, two companies that you, you know, built, you have learnings. Give us one or two anecdotes about learnings that you made because mistakes of that you do you made and and you know whatever you can share about those yeah i i want to highlight the the number one thing that i really often think about is so i had two games companies making games but i never really spent enough time thinking about why a certain game works and why another game doesn't like i was just fascinated about building games uh and fa- the fascination manifested in just you know quickly starting to work on a game uh based on like very sort of superficial understanding of wh- what 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 are good game mechanics why they work what not so like i think it took me at least 10 years to really appreciate uh game user research, uh, different understanding player motivations, user experience, design, everything. Um, like what drives people to, to, to play these games? There's a lot of stuff out there and like the great game designers like have poured stuff into, into GDC vault, <laughs> like immensely about that stuff. Um, 
so it was very superficial for me for the first 10 years of my career but then i i started more gravitating towards understanding hey why why did this game work why is this game dead why, why did it die in soft launch uh, versus the others uh so like that's that's one of the big learnings to spend more time figuring out like the the motivations of your player and understanding the audience before you start coding um and that helps you for as much as is possible be able to assess games and games dynamics before you actually you know already spend the time into building them exactly can you do it do you understand why a certain like let's say there's a, a game out there and then somebody attempts to do a clone out of that game or sort of like a fast follow or something um what are the reasons that some fast follows work and some don't it's very fascinating um so those kind of like just going down those rabbit holes really like enhances your understanding of hey how how should i approach making a game if i have a great idea mm -hmm. Do you give some examples specifically about those fast follows? Why, why, why some work and why some don't? Yeah, I think it's about the audience, like specifically um, investment of time and I, I want to beat this game, sort of like motivations um, and social ties that like if, if a game is retaining players quite well, it usually means that they, they don't, there's not a lot of competition out there, but then you look at some of the match tree games, which um, there's a broader uh, appeal for several games to be played by a single player versus like a, a strategy game, like how many uh, like Clash of Clans could one one person be playing uh, versus like how many Candy Crushes. So that's that's an example where you could like spend time on and understanding what what's going on there. How is the audience different? Uh, I, I think a lot of that goes into the audience understanding, uh, spending time with the audience, talking to them and stuff like that. How, how does that compare slash um, contrast with the more data-driven approach? Where you, because you're saying that through your research, you, you kind of have a better understanding about, you know, what games work and what strategies around games work. Um you know, one of the things I think made free-to-play so successful was the super fast iteration cycle where companies were less dependent on the um, ex-ante assessment of market product market fits and, and audience fits and more about, you know, rapid iteration, rapid prototyping, getting it out there in soft launch and looking at the data and, and to, to iterate on that. Mm, yeah, like a few things there. So mobile free-to-play, I think it was so much about timing in the market where um, first you had an entire ecosystem up for grabs where King, Supercell, many others, uh, great execution skills just appeared at the right time, <laughs> like right place at the right time uh, with those execution skills to take over. Uh, then fast forward a bit, like five years, you, you got like app loving people like taking real advantage, like really like using their data driven sort of like understanding and, and just crushing it. And then like Apple changes privacy policies and the golden age is done. And then, then we're, we're into a new realm where you really need to think outside of the box and you, you, it, it, we're just waiting for to see like what is the big thing in mobile. I, I think mobile isn't dead, but the the ways of working just mean that okay, those phases of the industry have ended, and we're not moving into into maybe maybe even more like audience driven um, sort of like capturing markets. Uh, like think about Survivor IO and how happy what they're doing. All of those are really like they understand the audience so well uh, versus like just crushing it with machine learning UA uh, like stuff. Mm -hmm. Is it correct of me to assess that, you know, the majority of your um, investments are mobile based and mobile focused? It is uh mostly but i definitely do have uh a more like a founder focus so it's it's rather like if there's 
there's gaming founders who are building something where I feel that okay, this this makes sense for venture, uh, for venture capital. Um, then it doesn't really matter if it's mobile. Um, but I I feel that like mobile it has so much still to give, and and people want new experiences on mobile, and it's the biggest platform. So like I I'm not gonna skew away from mobile. And what are what are some of the signs that a studio or a piece of content is is ready for venture? Because I think that's a an interesting delineation that's evolved yeah. over the last you know five ten years. Yeah, I, I like for me like when I was starting elite game developers, I was thinking like how do I scale this? <laughs> like, and I, I I felt that a newsletter, uh, it it's gonna sort of like infinitely scale as long as I'm I'm providing value. So there's no. Uh, no ceiling to it. Uh, I always approach everything by like, how how do I scale this as big as possible? So I, I like with my first startup, I, I was creating like we were creating a virtual world, and we started making a, a Finnish language first version first, so we could talk with our audience. But I was like, we were planning already immediately that we need to do an English version as well. But it was super distracting because we a big failure was to actually like start hosting two different products, running two different communities, another sort of like international and then keeping a local so that we could have taps on, on the audience. Uh, and it was like, it was tricky. Um, but what was the question again, Phil? <laughs> Why went on a tangent here? So no, it's fun. It, it was it was really just around you know what are some of the signs that that a piece of content platform agnostic mm. is is kind of ready for venture or makes sense from a yeah. venture return profile. Yeah, maybe that like the Finnish angle is like there's only five million Finnish speaking people and you can only like tap into like a, a small percentage on an online service. Um, like that's one dilemma that I often see that people are just like the the market is too narrow or there's like a hard cap coming up um, or that they don't really treat the company in a way that this could actually turn into something that makes in like a million a day. Like the, is there a limitation here? So there's one startup that I'm, I'm talking to constantly who is doing something very amazing uh, in Minecraft um, but they're so adamant in staying small uh, in so many ways. And I can see that this would blow up if they just want to. So it's it's also a part of like the founder's willingness to, to push it towards something that uh, could scale to billions. And one piece of context I want to give with that is that, you know, because us as investors sometimes like there's not a fit with our strategies and we are trained to look for outsized returns. A venture fund is probably made by one Uber, one Facebook, you know, one of these enormous companies, one ride games, mm. um, more specific for the games industry. Um, and so the fact that we decide that a, a company is not a, a fit for the fund does not mean that that company can't succeed. As you said, mm-hmm. Joachim, right? These founders decide that they want to stay small and they want to do things their way. Um, and you know, to be honest, like from an individual perspective as a founder, you know, it, I can totally see why you would want, if you have a working game and you're making a good living and you're enjoying your life, you don't want to think like a VC investor on board you know, telling you what to do, telling you to like keep growing, keep growing, um, because that's what we are trained to to push for. That's that's a yeah. really interesting point, and I think something that that often gets lost is there are times where we pass on companies, and we have a very clear path where we're like this founder might make twenty five, fifty million dollars personally, and so us passing oftentimes is not us saying that we think that the company is going to be a failure. It's not our prediction is this will be a zero. It's our prediction is this won't meet our fund returning profile um, mm-hmm. where you are like power law driven, and so I do think that's that's something that I always. I try to point out to some founders where like we do believe in them building something. It's just not for us is like, we see a successful path here and that's, that's not it. That's not, not just us saying that to make everyone feel good. Like you can, you can build a successful business and VC does not have to be your path um, mm. to, to run something that's meaningful and to honestly make a lot of money for yourself as a founder. There, there's some, sometimes some founders feel that VC is their path, but they don't still understand why 
doesn't sound like it is from what they're saying and talking and going through. So I I, I do love spend time people to 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 educate people on like, hey, this is where you're going wrong here, or you're thinking about scaling in a wrong way. Maybe the team, like this composition that you have for a team right now, there's something missing here. Um, like for you to actually enable uh, uh, VC funding uh, in, in the next 12 months or so. Um, so it's it's fun to, to kind of like see if people actually, when, when I push them a bit, like do they start moving into that direction or are they, are they stuck? So, yeah. And it might be mm-hmm. particularly helpful, Joachim, from your perspective, because you've kind of worn both hats, right? I mean, you've been at play and you've also angel invested. In terms of expected returns there, as an angel, you know, are you underwriting at more of a 10x than a power law fund returner? Or how, how do you think about that as somebody that's done both sides? I, so the thing is, I'm very obsessed with founders going into, into a mode of actually like raising, but then planning to raise again, to grow and grow. I, I, like, I do want to see bigger companies getting formed uh, out of the ones where I sort of get involved. Um, so I'm, I'm like, to avoid those, I'm, I'm actually writing a piece about secondary like rounds where the founders can take some of the stress off by selling a part of their company uh, to get some uh, cash uh, and then take the risk to actually grow yet again. Like, I know that as an angel, like 10x is great, uh, but like, I'd rather want to see at least a few companies attempt the 100x. Uh, so like, if there's a really good sort of package, the founders are great, the, the business is great, the market is great, like I'll definitely push for them to go for the 100 versus the 10. Just to give a bit of context, because I think it's a, it's a really interesting point, um, you know, in subsequent funding rounds, there's sometimes the opportunity to sell secondaries. And so in that yep. case, the uh, the founders that usually still have a pretty big chunk of the business, let's say that an individual founder still has 25%, they have the opportunity to sell like maybe 2 to 3% of their shares for maybe, you know, in a good case, um, you know, 500K or something like that. Um, that can give... Um, rest, peace of mind, and allow them to take slightly bigger risks where they're putting the company, you know, at, at a larger risk, right? They, they maybe hire more people. So, which means that they're dependent on that next round. And if that doesn't materialize and they're in trouble, uh, but once they have that peace of mind, then, um, you know, it gives them, gives them the opportunity to, to go for that. That's what you're describing, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's the, the peace of mind and, and to see something become huge. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. You mentioned, so as far as I understand from what you said now, there, the two things that you are mainly looking for are, I would say, founder fits and then the um, the market, essentially, uh, and, and, and the, the market potential and the outsized return potential of, of the product that they're building. Um, are, are those like for you the, the, the two main ones? And if they are, could you dig a bit deeper into your first, um, I guess, most important factor, which is the founders and what you're looking for there? Hmm. Yeah, so like I was having lunch last week with a founder, and uh, this is a person who's who's thinking about doing their second games company. Uh, they have like a, an idea that they're they're going after. Um, so I had two comments for them. Like first, why are you coming up with a new idea? Why don't you just do your previous company but better? <laughs> um, like it felt like. Uh, he he's like going into into a realm where he doesn't understand what he's up against like new problems like why not go after the old problems that's it's a lot better and he, what he used to be doing uh he sold the company kind of very early uh and he could do a lot of damage in that sec like segment so the the second advice i told him that hey you're you're kind of like the person who who's going to raise or try to attempt to raise like a, a million from people, maybe an angel or pre-seed. But I told him, hey, why don't, why don't you find a co-founder who would say, no, we need to raise 10 million. Sort of like if you find that person into your team, it's kind of like a 10x moment immediately, a huge leverage uh, to, to have somebody who's going to 
support you as a as a co-founder but still think like even bigger than what you're thinking right now um so I, I, let's see if he follows my advice <laughs> but yeah that that those kind of like things like i do really like to to push founders in the early stages as much as possible to think big um and to find co-founders that are even like better at at doing things or complementary or whatever because this was like a product founder and he he he's great but like he he might need that 10x like or that 10 million uh razor founder so just an example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that is um something we look for as well it is founder market fits and i think specifically you know in, in the games industry i guess um you know, building games, it's it's hard to find people that have like a true, true deep passion for like a certain type or genre of games, right? Um, but, you know, one question we like to ask ourselves is why are you the one doing this and why are you the person to be betting on or why are you guys the team in, in most cases to be betting on this for to, to solve this specific mm-hmm. problem? Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so it's uh, I think that's, you know, it's it's absolutely critical indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the there's there's an element to to what I want to do is to help founders meet other founders as well. Because um, like I spent so much time putting together the next games team, and it it actually worked out really well. Uh, versus like a you're rushing into it, you just grab the first person you, you sort of like feel could be good. Um, so. Yeah, there's a lot of value in in just building a team. And how do you, how do you try to hedge that as a first time founder? Because I know you've you've now done it multiple times, but yeah. for everyone there is a first. So proving out the founder market fit when you might not have mm-hmm. that that first potential failure under your belt that you can learn from. Yeah, it's really hard to navigate like going down uh, the road of having a team that isn't really optimal. Uh, so everybody kind of goes into that realm with their first company. Um, so that's what I try to do with elite game developers is like help people who are going for it for the first time to share all these 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 things that they should be doing. I think the best way is to start early. Start with like whatever you can de-risk early on. Uh, like not maybe not raise for your first games company try to bootstrap it as a side business or something whatever and learn as much as possible through experience and then like um i I think that's that's an interesting uh, like there's there's of course these accelerators and incubators around the world where you can meet co-founders i think that's uh that's sort of like an underappreciated thing that even for game founders it makes sense to to try that out um to get support and, and network with people. You mentioned a bit earlier that you think there's still big opportunity in um, the mobile space. You also mentioned that you're specifically looking for founders or startups that are targeting something with outsides, outsized return potential. What are some of the opportunities more broadly you're seeing within the gaming space? Um, what kind of you know, pitches direction will get you excited. What kind of spaces are you are you particularly interested in right now? Mm, everything uh, that utilizes uh, the the kind of the new new frontier where you know you're not relied on anything that happened pre IDFA. Um, Let's put it this way. I'm not like crazy about AI yet because like I haven't really seen it materialized as revenue anywhere uh, in gaming. It's it's sort of like the same with um, Web3 was extremely difficult uh, when everything came crashing down. <laughs> um, so like I, I think we need to still explore new things that I'm really passionate about founders who are trying to push and try to attempt new things, especially on the the marketing and distribution side of the the industry. I think those are the signals that when I hear that somebody's thinking really outside of the box 
about like how they're going to find players for their game, how they're going to retain their players. Like those are really amazing teams uh, who spend time obsessing over distribution and marketing. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of mm -hmm. where I'm looking at. It's really interesting. Um, we tend also to look specifically within Web3 for a distribution edge. You know, ATT hasn't made hasn't made um, acquiring users easier. And I would say that in Web3, it's still 100 times as hard. Um, and so we always look for a good answer to the question, like what gives you distribution edge? How are you putting your game into players' hands? Um, and not a lot of teams have a good answer for that. No, I can tell you that already. Um, and I guess more specifically about Web3, it's all of this, like it feels like we're all waiting for, you know, the whole onboarding to get easier. So, you know, that, that whole thing becomes easier. Uh, it's just um, yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating space right now, and um, it's an interesting scenario that a lot of startups find themselves in. Um, yeah, could you give some examples um, about, and and this does not have to be what three related, uh, the distribution thinking that you like, um, and some perhaps recent investments you've made mm, in the Web three space? Um, it's been quiet. Not necessarily. Also, <laughs> feel free, but yeah. it doesn't, doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I think like a couple of ones, it's very founder driven, to be honest, like what, what I've been investing in, um, where it's all over the place, mobile, mostly still, uh, the, there's a couple of PC startups as well, who are tackling like free to play PC, uh, with the, like really good teams where I've gotten involved. And they're all an unannounced deals, so like I can't really specifically talk specific companies or games. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I haven't yet seen the valuations come down really rushing in the deals that have come like have materialized. So that's an interesting thing. I I think the people are asking less now. We've gone from uh, four million to now people are asking for two million. Like, um, but valuation like, per seed. Yes. Yeah. So, like the 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 ask amount is is gone down. I haven't seen like what the like an average uh, like round pre seed round valuation gaming. How has that changed actually this year? Okay. Um, has it become something much lower than twelve months ago? Um, Nico, you probably have more data than I do. We tend to generally look at seats, the seed stage more than pre-seed stage. Um, mm. But I'm I'm assuming that all of those are in line. And I would say that, I mean, it's, it's really because in, in some cases, like seats have uh, like gone down by a factor of uh, like by a factor of four almost yeah. Um, yeah. from like, you know, 60 to 50. But obviously, like there was a bubble, right? So it's it's hard to to um, to take that those data as as, you know, something to compare uh, the current pricing by. Um, you know, I, I've come up as an investor in this time. And so for me now, it's like the cheapest I've ever seen. And so it's always fascinating yes. to talk to people that have been in this space for longer and are like still talking about like, you know, oh, we, yeah. we put in like 500K, we got 25% of the business. And I'm like, oh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, I think I one of the, the interesting metrics is burned rate. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if you guys have been looking at it, but like uh, a much lower burned rate than it used to be is something that I'm I'm really asking for more than how much do you want to raise? I'm like, okay, if you raise now a pre-seed, what does the burn look like in three months? So, Which, which in reality is actually what drives the valuations, right? I mean, at, at seed... The valuation is a function of the amount of capital you think you need and the dilution you're willing to take. You know, most of the yeah. seed businesses that are raising at 10 million post, you know, they're not necessarily worth $10 million. But if you say you need 20 million, if you say you need $2 million and you're willing to take, uh, you know, 20% dilution, then you're a $10 million company all of a sudden. So I think the burn rate's really important where the the only way valuations will continue to come down is if seed rounds kind of get smaller, where instead of it being three to five, like in the past, we start seeing more one and a half to three. That's, that's where we start to see it kind of chip back towards like the seven and a half to 12 and a half classic seed. Um, but, but like the burn rate and the amount of capital you think you need is really like 
what's driving this perception around valuations. Yeah. Like, what do you think, Phil, like US, like, can the startups actually like decrease the burn? Because it was super high for US teams. Like, is is there like leeway? I think in Europe, um, people had a premium, like, like yeah. burned rate for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've we've seen a lot of seed rounds kind of stick for now around like the the two and a half to three million dollar raise or two to three million dollar raise is pretty pretty standard at the moment. Mm. Um agree that I think people are trying to find creative ways to to maybe run leaner at the beginning to get to that initial traction and then maybe yeah. raise a seed extension or even pursue an A if they if they go fast enough. Um yep. But I think we'll also start to see more seed extensions because people may start to try to raise a little bit more conservative or, you know, maybe a little bit more aggressive, actually, seed rounds where they, they take on less capital. They run with a team of three until they start to find some traction, then go mm-hmm. out and do that three to five million dollar raise and hope that takes them to like a seven and a half to ten million dollar Series A. Um, I think we've seen people attempt to do it. Time will tell if if people are able to do that well. I think that's why. That's part of why we're seeing so much attention around AI in terms of enhancing efficiency. Um, I think, and I think that's interesting. We're, we're still kind of in the the Joachim camp of cautiously optimistic about AI, um, where we see the value it delivers in terms of efficiency, but we're not seeing a ton of actual standalone products and services that we get excited about as investable early stage opportunities. Um, yep. But I think people are trying to just make their workflows more efficient where instead of five people, maybe you do need four. And that's a, that's a huge win for a seed stage company. Yeah. I think the interesting thing here is like you have a stellar team and they have AI uh, in their deck. Um, it's sort of like a, it puts me a bit off. Because yeah. I know that that AI appeared there, like in the last few months. Well, and <laughs> and that's it's why. Sort of... No, go ahead. No, it's it's. I I just saw this headline a while ago in the Finnish like startup AI. Yeah, thing. and and that's, that's why I think it's often interesting when when we see we see companies not position themselves as AI companies. We see them positioning themselves as companies solving X problem and potentially using AI to make it more efficient, either from the team side or from the, the end service or product side. Um, Cause I think a lot of the companies that are currently trying to position themselves as, as AI, AI companies to get the VC dollars are actually solving an entirely different problem and using it in a potentially creative way. But yes. I think there actually is a huge difference between being an AI company and being a company that happens to be leveraging AI. And yeah. the latter actually gets us more exciting where you're, you're using it to, more efficiently solve an interesting problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. To uh, to briefly touch back upon the raise amount, um, I, I guess you know, uh, Phil, you mentioned like how much how much money do you need? Um, it's all a function of runway and how much time you need, like how much money you need to cover how much um, how many months uh, essentially. Joachim, is there a sort of sweet spot, in your opinion, when it comes to amount of runway for a pre-seed raise? So how many months does a pre-seed need to fund a company? Um, you know, do you, is is that a fixed number for you? Is that dependent on what they're building, if they can iterate fast and it's more a function of shots on goal, like prototypes they can get out? Um, how are you thinking about these things? I, I really love to see 24 month runway nowadays, to be honest. Like it's, it's a bit, like it's so hard to to show enough traction or show progress in less than two years like to to guarantee it's it's a big risk that if you need to go and raise in 12 months because you're going to run out in 18 months um like 24 minimum is what i'm going after now yeah i think that's fair i think um i don't know about you phil we do as i said a mostly seed and we are like the bar is getting high in terms of opportunity cost of, of deals and so we're trying to really focus on the ones that we're excited about and once we're excited about it's less about you know the story obviously it's a lot about the team but all else being equal we want to see some progress and and perhaps even some traction you know these are the things we're looking for um and if you can show that early early revenue um which an NFT sale during the height of the bull market is not early revenue. Um, no, that's 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 a separate podcast. Um, but if you can show some some excitement and, and people actually, you know, 
haven't found in the game and willing to spend or or you know some some good solid early prototypes with some good kpis around retention more than willingness to you know speculate um that's that's what we look for yeah it's good yeah i mean i think and i think it also depends on the type of business we're at seed which is also where where we spend a lot of our time it's B to C, maybe 18 to 24, B to B, sometimes it's like 24 to 30. Um, if it's going to be a really long sales cycle, um, it does kind of flex depending on what you're doing and who you're selling to. But mm. a green eco, NFT revenue, if I see 5 million in NFT revenue, I assume it's $0 in revenue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joachim, do, do you only invest in, in game studios or do you also do like infrastructure and these types of things? Uh, so I, I, my focus is kind of B to C, so that covers a lot uh, of consumer-facing stuff, yeah. uh, where it's not necessarily even a game studio, but it could be something that's do, doing like gaming video-related stuff, uh, some some gaming betting, um, like all sorts of facilitation for gaming. Uh, where there's a like a consumer component there, uh, so I'm looking a lot around that kind of stuff platforms. Um, but yeah, like I would say, like majority of what I spend time on is still game studios. Awesome. As my final question, one that I like to ask my guests or guests, but I often forget. Can you give us a spicy prediction for the next year? In gaming, and you can choose whatever topic you could talk about the complete collapse of everything Web3. Uh, we could also make another prediction. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. And if you, you need a time to think, I'm going to throw the same one at Phil because it's been a while since I heard anything spicy from you. So, Phil, go ahead, man. You 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 should have one of these in the back of your mind every time you get on a call with me. So, I'm not going to give you so much time to think. Hmm. I just, I just assume I'm immune to this at this point. I've, I've, I've talked just about so many spicy takes with you. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I will, I will go back to when we talked about a few episodes ago because it's been relevant in the Discord recently. Is, you know, I, I personally don't think we're going to see a breakout Web three game in the next twenty four months. Okay. Mm, spicy. It is spicy. Okay. I'm, I'm. We should find something to bet over. Something fun to bet over. Um, because I think it will. Well, it depends a bit on what we call the breakout, right? But uh, yeah, I guess uh, we can agree yeah. on that. You're okay. How about you? Yeah. Um, I feel that Microsoft um, will take over a bunch of the market share on mobile quite quickly uh, when they enter mobile, like a big time. Um and hopefully that happens soon. Uh, I don't know if it's a spicy take, but like I, I just feel that there's there's so much mo- momentum at Microsoft that they're gonna do a lot of damage in the near future in gaming. How do you see that happen? Could you be a bit more specific in in the mechanics of it? Yeah, like if and when they can open a store on the iPhone and have apps being distributed through a Microsoft uh, sort of owned store. I think that's when you you could start seeing them pulling some of their IP out of uh, Google and Apple stores, like Candy Crush eventually when the Activision deal goes through, Minecraft, Mm -hmm. whatever, like Microsoft owns. There's a lot of interesting things there where I don't, I don't think a lot of people appreciate how much damage they could do. They're more aligned with gaming than Apple and Google, uh, than Facebook, than any of the big big companies, Amazon. Like Microsoft is the only IP holder really in gaming. Interesting. That's a really good take. And um, I need to think that one through. Um, but appreciate it. Are you going to give us one now, Nico? Yeah. I gave one last week, which was... Extremely, um, how do you, what is non-spicy? Tepid. It was like a <laughs> glass of milk, apparently. My my prediction. Okay. Very boring. Yeah. Um, what is the spicy prediction I can? Well, I, you know, Phil, I'm just gonna counter your prediction, and I already said it. I think for this year, we're gonna see a game, a Web three enabled game, that's gonna be, let's say, more than ten million players. 
Mm-hmm. I think that I think that's spicy, no? In 2023. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward. Yeah. Hey, I, I, I think I think that'd be great. I'm I'm not cheering against Web three. I'm just trying to be extra conservative on yeah. my expectations yeah. for timeline because yeah. I think I think last year we got yeah. too aggressive with our expectations. So yeah. I'm, I'm doing bent stick method, going the opposite end. Yeah. Dude, man, everyone is just like jumps on a hype train, like um, just you know. If you spend too much time on Twitter, you start to think like everyone else. So maybe maybe we should mm. you know do that less. Probably the main takeaway from from this from this recording episode: don't spend so much time listening to other people and and you know think first principles. Awesome, good, Phil and Joachim specifically. Thank you so much for joining. Um, it was a blast having you guys discussing these things. Um, yeah, I um I really enjoy thinking about you know early stage um, investing and helping founders. And I always say this right, like I with every founder I speak, have immense respect for the position they put themselves in by founding a company because that's pretty pretty much the hardest thing you can do. And, um, you know, I have easy. So, um, respect. If you're listening to this and you're building a company, respect. That's all I can say. Good. Yeah. Joachim, Phil, thank you. Listener, thank you as well. Um, go follow Joachim on LinkedIn. You're also on Twitter, EliteGameDevelopers.com. Yes. News, newsletter yeah, as well. Yeah, on Twitter, Joachim underscore A. You can find me there. If you want to have more conversations like this, um, when we're recording this, so Wednesdays and Fridays alternating, 6 p.m. CET, we're doing town squares. Um, We have a bunch of really smart people who are demonstrating how to use AI and do cool shit with ads. We have pitch reviews, and very, very seldomly, we have Phil joining us as well, which is when, when things get real fun. Good. All right. That was it. Um, Thank you for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao.